The Anand story is one of tremendous success for modest origins. Dev and his brother Ranjit set up Expertel in the early 70s, and by the time they sold it two decades later, it had a turnover in excess of 100 million pounds. Expertel was the first hotel booking agency globally, and with a slight degree of serendipity, its foundation coincided with London opening scores of hotels off the back of the Tourism Act, transforming it from a seller's to a buyer's market almost overnight. In addition to the favorable market conditions, Expertel also managed to dramatically increase their business through buying one of the UK's first telephone numbers when a US company, IRL, retreated from the UK market despite having conducted a year-long campaign in the Evening Standard, promoting the very number that Expertel purchased. Other pioneering business practices included the inception of the corporate rate, the London Hotel Wall Chart, the foundation of the Hotel Booking Agency Association, commission on catering bookings, and many more. Dev was also one of the first adopters and sellers of corporate hospitality, and he tells the tale of how this started and its transition from sketchy cash-in-hand deals to the purchase of Keith Prowse, complete with royal warrant, which still today remains a leader in global corporate hospitality, using many groundbreaking innovations that were started by Dev. Dev reviews some of Impetus Marketing's standout successes and concludes by talking about how business has been for the past decade as an active hotel broker through his company, the Hotel Property Team. The episode contains incredible insights and anecdotes which span five decades and with no sign of slowing down, Debonair Dev continues to be at the heart of the industry, continuing to liaise with hotel buyers, sellers, agents and development professionals with his trademark humour and eye for a deal. Enjoy Untold with Devanand. We're joined today by Devon Anand, who's a fantastic career-long travel hospitality professional. I've known Dev for, for many years and, and as an early first comer into the industry at the Langham, Dev opened many doors for me and allowed me to get appointments with many movers and shakers in the meetings and events industry. I'll just take a, tell a quick story if, you, if uh, it's okay, Dev, of one of the first times I actually repaid a favour for you. Uh-huh. So, I'm not so firstly, uh, good afternoon to you, uh, Gareth. Good to talk to you again. Excellent. Thanks, Dev. So you, you had sold uh, the, the business to Expertel. So it sort of come full circle and you had, you had set up Impetus Marketing and, uh, and one of your first clients was OpenTable, which is now obviously uh, an extremely yeah. large American restaurant company and, and you called me at, at the Langham and said who do I speak to to get open table in the Langham I, I, I said well that would be our new F&B director Caroline Jane Houston I don't 
I don't know her particularly well because she's only just started, but let me let me go into her office and see if I can set up a meeting for you, Dev. So due to, as a 23, 24 year old, whatever I was, knocked on Caroline's door, set up the meeting, which was at our brand new artesian bar, which had spent millions and been designed by David Collins. And, and we had a little pre-meeting. It was about 10.30 in the morning, 11 o'clock. And uh, I said, would you like a drink, Dev? Thinking you'd have a coffee or do you say, do you know what? I like a pina colada. <laughs> so Caroline Jane Houston arrived in the Artesian bar, took a look at me, a look at you with your big pina colada, thought, what have I got myself in for here? After, after two minutes, you said, we've met before at Glen Eagles, at which point she said, no, I've got, I've got an identical twin sister, Anne-Marie Houston. Anyway, <laughs> after that, left you chatting and... Uh, you call me later in the afternoon, having managed to get the contract signed over the over the course of the the meeting in the Artesian. But it was uh, showing your salesmanship, your skills, and and ability to obviously do favors and get favors repaid as well. Absolutely, thank you for that. And I think we got open table into the restaurant in the end, so that was a good deal. <laughs> yeah. So, Dev, along with your brother Ranjit, you you founded. The company Expertel in the early 70s, which was the first hotel booking agency, venue placement agency, whatever term you'd, you'd like to give to it. But what was the idea genesis behind that? And at that stage, were there any such agencies or, or did it exist? To answer your question, Gareth, um, I basically grew up, uh, my folks, parents uh, from the Punjab of India, and came over here as relatively penniless uh, refugees from the partition of India, Pakistan in 1947. There, uh, they were Punjabi Sikhs, and hence the long hair, and uh, uh, arrived in 47 with not much. And um, by the mid to late 60s, they got into property, got into more flat rental bedsits. And 67, I think, 1967, they, uh, my father owned his first hotel. So we kind of grew up, I would have been probably 12 at the time, very much as a hotel family. And uh, there are many of uh, your listeners out there that uh, would have had similar experiences, which was usually around the dinner table, the conversation was, how do we fill the last room on a Sunday night? or the night porter didn't turn up and which one of you is gonna go and cover for him. Uh, and my brother and I, my brother's uh, six years older, um, basically through that sort of growing up period, we liked hotels, loved the idea, but just didn't quite like the 24 seven aspect of it. So my brother had the idea um, of starting an agency and I'll tell you uh, more about that in a second. Uh, but we quite like the idea that we could work very hard Monday to Friday and have the weekends off. Uh, no, but being serious, uh, if you remember in a bit of history here, so in um, post-war period, the hotel industry was very much a seller's market. There, there were far fewer hotels than the demand was being build, building up to. In the 60s, you had the transatlantic cheap airfares, uh, the Freddie Lakers of this world and so on. Uh, 
and there were incoming inbound tourism was far exceeding the number of decent hotels that could accommodate them. And interestingly enough, a Labour government, Harold Wilson's government, with a good Welshman, Lord, Lord Tony Pandy, uh, between them concocted the Tourism Act of I don't know, 1967 or something. And for a three or four year period, anyone that either built a new hotel or added rooms to an existing hotel was given a thousand pound a room grant by the government. Um, and therefore, you know, build a 200 room hotel and you got 200,000. And in 67 money, that's, you know, times 10 times 15 today. And it's the reason why uh, You've got an awful lot of hotels, particularly in London, the likes of the Copthorne Tara, the Gloucester, the Tower, the so on and so on, some of which actually had very small rooms, mainly because the more rooms you built, the more thousand quid you got. So uh, fairly logical. The mistake the government made was to um, demand uh, as part of the grant scheme, you had to be open on a given date. And that day was actually 31 March 1972. So it meant overnight the, the market changed from seller to buyer, buyer's market. And we started our agency on February the 1st, 1972. And we didn't know any of that was happening. So my first job was to go knocking on all the doors of all the existing hotels in Park Lane, the Hilton and the Grosvenor House and the Dorchester and so on all of whom at front office manager looked slightly down their nose and said, oh, booking agency, why would we want one of those? Um, you know, we're, we're full most nights. Uh, and then about six or eight weeks later, those same people were phoning me up saying, oh my gosh, <laughs> we've just had 20 new hotels open around the corner. So I think you better come back in and we'll have a proper conversation. So uh, timing was brilliant, uh, not because of our design, it just happened that way. I think I was 17 at the time and my brother was 20, whatever, three. Uh, so we were two young guys that didn't have a clue what we were doing. We just wanted to have a party and uh, do a bit of work to, in order to afford uh, the party. So that's pretty much uh, how we started, yeah. So you mentioned, then, you mentioned some of those um, hotels and, and, and obviously the, the, the larger ones that have been built and opened. Who, who are the, some of the key figures and travel characters of the time that you were negotiating with and working with when it got slightly more sophisticated than, than a front office manager just walking in off the street and cold calling as you did initially? Sure. So started 71, 72, and it's fair to say that by the end of that decade, by 1980, we were actually quite a, a serious name. Uh, what was slightly helped uh, was that in 1974, I think we were the first people to buy a telephone number. Uh, nobody had ever bought a telephone number before. And that was an American corporation, very high tech, very computerized, called International Reservations spent half a million pound on marketing in 1970-something, the early 70s, uh, a company called International Reservations, IRL, and the phone number was 235 1200, because it was pre all the other suffixes and all that, uh, pref whatever. Um, and we just read a three-inch column in the Financial Times that said, International Reservations, 
closing down, going back to Houston or wherever they came from, uh, looking at their wounds um, and finish. And my brother had the foresight to basically call the guy up who we knew, and we knew him quite well, and I'll tell you why in a minute, um, and said, what are you doing with the phone number? And he said, well, I would have thought you'd ask me, what are we doing with the computer? He said, no, it's junk the computer. It's the bloody phone number I want. Because every, every, one of the marketing gigs they did was every London Evening Standard sold for two weeks, had a little plastic card with dial this number for a hotel room in 15 seconds. So the number was hugely uh, known, particularly in PA circles of uh, secretaries and PAs to directors and companies. Uh, and we bought the phone number. And it was all housed in the National Cobalt Building in uh, Victoria. Uh, they rented space there. And all we did is said, we don't want your people, we don't want your computers, we don't want your premises, we just want the bloody phone number. So we pulled it over to this small office we had in Kensington at the time. And it took our business literally overnight from 10, 15 bookings a day to 50, 100, 150 bookings a day. And we knew these people because in the, the, the previous year, they had gone out and said to hotels, let's set up allocations on free sale and we'll put it in the computer and we'll send you a printout by Telex and blah, blah, blah. And nobody really got it. Nobody understood what that all meant. Um, they didn't do a lot of business in the lean times of the January, February, March time. But then suddenly come May or September or October, they were pumping bookings into these hotels by which time the front office manager had forgotten that he'd actually entered into this agreement. So suddenly we were getting the phone call from IRL saying, um, you're a booking agent, uh, any chance you could, we've free sold all these bookings and the hotel now told us that actually they don't have any rooms. Um, and they were giving it to us on the basis that we could keep the commission. And we said, thank you very much. So, <laughs> right, to answer your question, um, the two big factors, particularly in London, at in the 70s was basically Grand Met and what was then Trust House Forte. Grand Met, Jewish heritage, started after the war, I think at 18 London hotels and 50 UK hotels. So it was a pretty major player um, and had the privilege or uh, note of employing the first man in, uh, or person in uh, the country who actually had the job title of sales director. And that was a man called Derek Taylor, who I believe is actually still with us today, which is remarkable. And his son, Hugh Taylor, is quite a, a well-known player with uh, David Michelle's uh, as Michelle's Taylor. Um, and Derek was uh, uh, quite a bright spark in sales and marketing at the time. Forte, you know, very Italian, Catholic, uh, quite a reputable outfit. They had 200 hotels in the UK, probably not just similar number in London, and were, you know, very well established. They were well known for their training and so on and so on. And the rule of thumb was if you ever worked for one, you would never work for the other. And there's only one man to my knowledge that ever broke the rule. And that's a man called Richard Thomason, uh, who went from Grand Met to Forte and probably both companies had a, a vendetta on him thereafter. <laughs> but uh, 
No, so they were the major players, and then a whole bunch of hotel groups that have morphed and whatever. Uh, Grand Met, I think one of the most intelligent conversations I, I, I recall was Grand Met was started by a guy called Max Joseph, uh, as I say, after the war, Hungarian refugee. Um, his right hand man was a man called Henry Edwards. Uh, when Henry had done his 10 years with uh, Max, uh, Henry said, I think it's time for me to go off and do my own thing. Max not only wished him well and uh, gave him support, he even took 10% equity in Henry Edwards' business. And Henry then uh, went on to be center hotels, comfort hotels, friendly hotels, and whatever the hell they're called now. I think they'd be giving you a choice, really, as a, yes. as a brand. And that, so, uh, yeah. And how did you establish the rules of working and engagement with hotels? And uh, did any of these become business practices that, became industry standards that, that we'd understand today? Quite a few. So the very first one was, it was fairly traditional at that time for hotels to pay travel agents rather than hotel booking agents, because there weren't any, um, a standard 10% commission. And then VAT kind of came in at some stage and changed it to eight, but let's call it 10 for the minute. Um, and in that 72, 73 era, and probably other events occurred that caused you know, to, uh, the hotels to, to be very much more a buyer's market. One bright spark in Kensington um, at a hotel that's now actually called the Hilton Olympia um, came and knocked on our door and said, what would happen if I paid you 20% commission in the winter months? Because summer, you know, it looks after itself, but uh, November through to March, uh, it can be a bit lean. And my brother was intelligent enough, and again, foresight's kind of a, a very major play, to say, actually, I tell you what, why don't you give us the 10% commission as standard, but give us the other 10 that we can offer to our clients as a corporate rate. So we were the booking agency that could sell the hotel, this one hotel in Kensington, for less than if you call the reception that day. And it became known as the corporate rate, which eventually gave way to BAR, best available. Um, and on the back of one hotel, we said, well, we can't go out with a brochure with one hotel in it. So we called 10 other hotels and we met. So our first corporate rate guide printed in those days had 10 hotels in it, uh, two in Kensington, two in Bayswater, two in Park Lane, whatever. And we became known as the, the corporate agency that can get you a business rate. And it got actually quite silly at one stage. Uh, people like Texaco, who were in uh, opposite the Gloucester Hotel when it opened in 72, uh, the Gloucester opened at a rack rate of eight quid, eight pound for a room for a night. And we got seven pound 50, we got 50p off. <laughs> and Texaco, who had been a direct customer of that hotel for more years than I care to, or well, it, it had just opened, but had been around the block of the, in that area, suddenly was putting all his business through us. So that was pretty good news. <laughs> the second thing that was probably, so corporate rate, as I say, just didn't exist uh, before that. The, the second thing that happened was uh, we were sitting there one day with the then sales director of Trust House Forte having lunch and we just said 
out of interest, you pay us commission on bedrooms, but you don't want to pay us commission on food and beverage and conference delegate rates and all that. Why is that? Uh, and they had the Grosvenor House at the time, you know, where if you could put 2,000 people into the great room rather than it sitting empty, feeding them, drinking them, and probably taking up a couple of hundred bedrooms, uh, he could see the value in that. And he said, you're right, I don't understand. So he went back to his people. He said, why don't we pay commission on food and beverage? And they said, oh, the margins are tight and blah, blah, blah. But he applied the business logic to say a booking filling up our hotel is better than the bloody thing being empty. And therefore, that's why we, we, we. So Trust has Forte and the Carton Tower, funnily enough, and Associated Hotels, which eventually became the Barclay Brothers, were the first three, four, uh, Henry Edwards, uh, first three, four, five hotel companies to say, we'll pay you commission on food and beverage. Today, you now have 75 plus conference booking agents out there in the UK, which you probably don't have anywhere else in the world, all of whom make a very handsome living by booking meetings and conferences, not only at the, the just the published rate, but probably on a discounted rate, and still earn eight or ten percent commission uh, for themselves. So, yeah, that was the first. So the industry obviously um, exists from from your efforts back then, because uh, had the market dynamics been different and and the doors not been open, it's difficult. Well, it it might have been another business cycle before it become a possibility, but. You, you, you guys certainly were pioneers and paved the way for the industry that exists today. Sure. And in fact, even in the UK, we have a thing called the HBAA. So colloquially, hotel booking agents are called HBAs. Travel management companies are called TMCs or TA or whatever. Um, and we, I think I was probably instrumental in creating the association. I'm, I'm going back again to probably the early 80s. And by that time, there was 5, 10, 15, 20 booking agents around. And we all kind of knew each other because we all got invited to the same cocktail parties when a new hotel opened. And I just collared two or three of these guys and said, you know, we should have a hotel booking agents. Yeah. Like uh, the travel agents had IATA and APTA and so on and so on. And people have often asked me to say, well, why did you do that? And I said, because you know there would come a time when hotel owners were saying well why are we paying commission to all these guys you know why don't we just rub them out and put our own sales and marketing force in and i said yeah if we engage with the hotel owners in a sensible way and just say look if the things we do that irritate you then you know let's have a code of conduct let's perform you know both sides that you know we're not going to mess each other around the HBA today, or certainly pre-COVID, you know, is about the strongest organisation going. It, it's a very equal partnership of hotels and agents. The, the committee, the board, whatever it's called, is, is you know, a fairly even thing. And I don't think it exists anywhere else in the world. Um, so very, very interesting. So, Deb, you evolved for the, the business then from very much from the FITs calling the famous phone number that you bought developed the conference and you then had the commission on F&B. So you had the banqueting business. You're obviously extremely famous as both a sales and marketeer. How did you find the clients then to be able to take the corporate clients and place them in the, some, the Grosvenor House and some of these other prestigious hotels? 
two things we did. One was the most stupidest thing I've ever heard of. We created, and it became legend, the hotel wall chart. And it was a big piece of paper, I don't know, four times A4 or something. And it had on one side 120 London hotels and on the other side, a map of London. So firstly, every time we took a phone call, instead of somebody saying, oh, where is this hotel? We just say, right, have one of our bloody wall charts and you can find out for yourself. And on the, the listing side, it was the hotel name, the nearest tube station, the star rating, rack rate, expertel rate, blah. And it told you everything you ever needed to know. And the only thing was there was only one phone number of a bomb, which was ours, 235-1200. And we started printing, I don't know how many copies. It got up to a print run of 50,000 a year. And we just mailed them mostly to our existing clients, but you know, inevitably to bought-in mail lists. And I even went into one office, the Shell Petroleum Company, and I'm trying to pitch to them. And they've got my bloody wall chart on the wall, and they've handwritten in the phone number of every hotel <laughs> because they didn't want to call us, but they found the chart so useful. They said, oh, well, we better put the phone number of the hotel up so that we could use that as our manual. Um, I remember all of this stuff was pre-internet, pre-computer, pre-whatever. So at its height in 1991, when we sold the business, we were doing a thousand reservations a day out of three or four offices, London, Manchester, Glasgow, and somewhere. And it was a thousand secretaries, PAs, end users phoning us in, virtually all on the phone, a thousand bookings a day. And then somewhere on the line, we got smart and we said, yeah, we're pumping bundles of business into somewhere like the Copthorne Tower, the London Tower as it was then, um, you know, because it was a great hotel, it was seven, eight quid a night, you know, it was just everyone's cup of tea. So eventually, uh, I went to a really old dog of a GM who was a fabulous man, uh, became a sort of bit of a mentor to me, a man called Owen Dillon, and I said, you know, we're sending you 10, 15, 18 bookings a day, and he said, well, why don't I just give you a 20-room allocation? then you don't have to phone me. And we said, oh, wow, that's smart. <laughs> so we have ended up with you know, literally a thousand rooms in London on allotment or free sale. Then we had to work out how do you share that amongst three offices? Well, first of all, 20, 30 staff in one office um, and then across three offices. The whole point being that on the incoming call, you could then say book, booked instantly. So we had allocation books. We had pencils. We had a tie line between London, Manchester and Glasgow so that Manchester would hold the allocation books for Manchester, London would hold the allocation books for London Yeah, and it was all this and you know, hang on a second, I've got this client and somehow it all worked. I mean, unbelievable. And everyone got a room, very few people ever got booked out and my three managers at the time Laura Green in London, and Pat O'Brien in Manchester, and Marion Perkins in Glasgow, and woe betide any hotel if you booked out on it. We can book the whole the rest of the world out for all we care, but you don't book out on people. Well. And hoteliers, grown men, used to come and cry at my office and just say, do I have to deal with these people? I said, yeah, that's why I hired them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was all good, good fun in the days.
And in terms of the the, the hotel landscape itself, the, from an international arrivals perspective, where where did most of the travellers come from? Was it heavily US? Uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say, as it is today, you know, your average Holiday Inn, three-star, four-star across the UK, you know, it's a domestic UK business traveller of the week and the leisure traveller of the weekend. Um, but five-star, Park Lane, um, London, European capital cities, even the Manchester's of this world, you know, they're the ones that are dying today because there are no planes coming in. You know? So I think I've heard five-star hotels tell me that 80% of their arrivals are overseas nationals and only 20% of them are UK passports. Um, whereas, you know, your holiday inn in Middlesbrough, you know, almost certainly the opposite. Um, so, and that's why what we're seeing with COVID is this bit the staycation market in leisure or be it or whatever, you know, the small country house hotels in Scotland are actually regaining their occupancy far faster than the likes of Five Star Park Lane. And with regards to Expertel at its peak, it got to a turnover of 100 million, and, and you just talked about some of the reservation um, numbers. What, what were some of the, the tougher times in the economic cycle? Uh, funnily enough, every decade, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I don't, can't really remember what happened after that, had a, a similar cycle. The start of the decade was terrible, probably because of minor strikes, three-day weeks, recession, global explosion, terrorism, whatever you want to call it. And by mid-decade, uh, business has sort of got back. So the year five in the decade, you know, suddenly things were back on rosy and got to a crescendo at the back end of the decade. Now, that's probably just coincidence, but you know, th there were definite cycles like that. Um, 2000, I think he, particularly if you take 2007, eight, when we had the financial global meltdown, uh, it's fair to say that provincial hotels actually did suffer badly and took a good long time to recover. But London held up and it's held up very, very strong since. Uh, and we'll come on to the hotel property team and I'll tell you about kind of prices on hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So corporate hospitality, Dev, I remember one of the very early HBAA, HBAA events, you talking about really pioneering corporate hospitality and Expertel or post-Expertel, you purchasing Keith Prowse, who obviously Keith Prowse has a hundred, couple of hundred year history, but is now has a global reputation for Wimbledon, Twickenham and the, the horse racing and, and so on. It's possible to talk through some of the, the concepts and, and your involvement with that business. Okay. It all came about in the mid to late 70s um we were getting closer and closer to the main board directors of major uk corporates so the texacos and xerox and ibm and this and that and the other probably through their pas but you know we we were very regularly not only booking the, the mass employee workforce but also the suite at the ritz or the uh, in on the park or whatever for the board or the big senior board meeting. And then through that, we also happened 
purely because my brother happened to be a bit of a football freak, we got quite close to the likes of Arsenal and Man U and a couple of the other, uh, Chelsea and so on. And we ended up booking there after cup final banquets in a hotel or even their accommodation when they had to travel on a regular match day or whatever. And the two kind of combined when one client who knew us quite well uh, said, said, you know, my chairman really would like a couple of tickets for the cup final. And I happen to know that you know Man you and you know blah, blah, blah. Is there any chance you could uh, help us? So we were doing that. And you know, it was a quite easy call to the secretary or whatever at the football club and just say, hey, for a couple of tickets and boom. And then this sort of slightly snowballed. And then we thought, well, hang on a second, we can't keep calling favors in here or there and everywhere. And the deal was um, uh, you, you could buy tickets for events, but they usually had a five to 10 times markup on face value. So a 20 quid ticket for the cup final will cost you 200 quid, particularly on the black market. Um, but we could buy a hotel room for half the price. So a 50 room at the Royal Lank, you know, we could get for 25 quid. Um, if you buy wisely on your champagne and blah, 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 blah. So cut a long story short, uh, initially day one, 79, 78, 79, we were getting the ticket supply from the black market because we couldn't lean on our regular friends, um, but packaging it with a banquet, uh, a weekend in London, two nights accommodation, a banquet, uh, and then we somehow found a way of getting celebs and stars into, into the conference room. So you'd buy a table of 10 and actually you'd get a table of 12 with two celebs sitting on it. And we sold it to our corporate client. Um, and that was all fine. And we were up to five, six, seven hundred people at cup final weekends. And then we started with rugby weekends and blah, blah, blah. And we were the first people in the marketplace to be doing this. And you know, the corporate hospitality had never even been heard of. And then the BAT man came along and he said, OK, uh, I'd like to see you're charging your clients BAT on taking the table of 10. And you're paying the BAT to the hotel and the restaurant and the Wembley Conference Centre. What's this kind of cash amount, 200 quid? And I promise you, I remember one week uh, shortly before the cup final, we had a thousand tickets for the cup final. 200 quid a pot, that is 200,000 pounds in cash. And I went with a flipping suitcase and three heavies in a limo to an underground car park to meet our friend who actually was a friend, but with 200 grand and the thousand cup final tickets, you're not really friends. <laughs> he had his three heavies and we kind of did one of those where, you know, half a hand on the envelope and half a hand on the suitcase and boom. And that was great. So how do you explain all that to the back? And we <laughs> thought we'd got to find a better way. And buying tickets on the black market, you know, it's a very unreliable business. And that's how we ended up buying Keith Prowse. Uh, Keith Browse is a 200-year-old company, a Royal Warrant, uh, the official appointments, the RFU and the FA and Wimbledon and blah, 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 blah. And it was really, really, really badly managed. It had last been managed, uh, started by Mr. Keith and Mr. Prowse in 1878 or something. Uh, over the years, it was quite a pioneer. They sold the first commercial air ticket in 1903 at a farmer airport. Um, they started a travel agency, blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, and then it was given to the Cadbury family. Peter Cadbury ran it in the 60s, and I think he was the last decent guy that ran it. And then it all went amok, and all the staff in the company were mini spins in their own right, and they were all selling tickets off for And that's how we knew them, because we were getting half our tickets for them. And so we tracked it down, down to the owner, and it was a newspaper publisher up in Wolverhampton, and we said, you know, are you aware of some of the malpractices going on in this business? And they said, hmm, we have a suspicion, but we're not 100%. And we said, well, I'll tell you where every crooked angle is. So we bought it off them for a pound of these debts. The debts were about half a million quid. Um, and it made us legitimate overnight. So it then enhanced, uh, we had the relationship with uh, Buckingham Palace on Royal Warrants as, as their source of buying tickets. We had the concession with Harrods and blah, 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 and uh, the official appointments for Wimbledon and so on. So it took us a couple of years in the early 80s to kind of bring it all back into a straight commercial sense, but you know, in a legitimate and proper way and doing things properly. So yeah, quite a story. From an underground car park to Royal Warrant. So <laughs> amazing. Thank you, Dev. That's a fantastic story. In, in terms of subsequent to that, there were then another couple of decades of building and successfully exiting, selling agencies how did the doing business in the 90s and 2000s then contrast to the 70s and 80s um well certainly from the uh, corporate end this idiot man called procurement officer suddenly turned up on our doorstep um because before that you could just chat up a couple of pas and secretaries take them out for dinner and have a good time <laughs> that's how you got your business and then procurement turned up and said oh no 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 we'd like to do this more sensibly uh but you get yeah life changes uh and i remember winning the tesco account i think that was with first option at the time and tesco spent about four million pound a year on hotel and conference in the early 2000s so probably double that now and they kind of knew the, the amount they were spending because there was a nominal code on the on the payments, but they didn't actually know who they spent it with. And therefore the agent became the, the kind of mega way of saying, we'll manage your spend, A, we'll do the booking, save the secretaries and PA's time and even the end traveler, uh, particularly even online, you know, people can waste you know, an hour and a half to save 10 quid on an EasyJet ticket, whereas, uh, actually they're more productive doing their job um but b we also then have invented the uh technology to produce the mi that said look we can tell you who your top 10 bookers are we can tell you uh who your 10 top hotel suppliers are etc etc and then armed with that on their behalf go out and negotiate the tesco rate and so on and so on and in fact i remember uh, I'm not sure if it was them or somebody else, but an FD phoning me up in November. Uh, their year end was March 31. And he said we were spending you know, £5 million a year. That's, I think it was about a million pounds a month, so £12 million a year. He said, if we put a complete axe on anyone staying in a hotel or having a meeting for three months, Jan to March, we could save ourselves three million quid. And that three million then enhances our annual uh, EBITDA figures. 
he said, can we do it? And I said, yeah, of course we can, because we know exactly who books them. We've just got to say to 20 people, don't book them, or you tell them, you know, we'll just not follow your instruction. And literally that happened. Uh, it's probably criminal and not considered to be good practice anymore, but you know, it was the, the first time a corporate had the ability to do that. So yeah, the whole thing grew up and became a lot more sophisticated. And then Bedfair and Finefair, you sold to Expertel, <laughs> and then 50, so it come around full circle, and you set up, before you set up Impetus Marketing, you set up Dev's Drinking Club. So that was, <laughs> that, was, that, that was the period where you, you just sold the business, so you didn't have a day job necessarily. And uh, this, this was in, always in a difficult to find London venue who would give you free food. And, and it was a Monday or Tuesday night. So it, it really, you had to be uh, fairly committed to get there. So I, I remember there being three or four, but then you started signing lots of clients. So you had Worktopia, Worldnet, Vision, hotel brokers brought you in as a consultant and, and obviously open table as we talked about at, at the start. Can, can you talk about some of your favorite stories or bigger successes that, that came about early on having sold the agencies and really just completely diverse, diversified into travel technology and, and other associated businesses? Absolutely. So let's just take it back to Expertel. I think Expertel uh, from 1972 to 91, when, as you say, we sold it to Morris Siegel, I think was a really very special company in that we were fairly youngsters. We didn't have a clue what we were doing business-wise for the first few years. And then we met a man about 75, three years in, who said, look, uh, you really need to you know, do things like budgets and uh, business forecasts and all that shit. And we just said, oh, okay, then we have to. But we grew the business from literally two, my brother and myself, uh, you know, to a handful. And eventually, I think Expertel alone, without Keith Prowse, was around about 200 plus people in the three offices. And I think we did some really interesting things. A, all our management was homegrown. Uh, largely females, so there's no particular uh, sex thing there going on, but yeah, it just so happened you know, there's an awful lot of females in the hotel business, um, all of whom you know, really were reservation clerk level people, but we kind of grew internally in terms of management. And there was a couple of things, and oh, in the 70s, we employed our first gay guy, and he we treated him like you know he'd treat anyone else and then he brought a mate along and before long he had a scenario where they were phoning all their mates and an awful lot of gay people in the hotel business saying hey they don't mind if you're gay here you know as long as you do a decent day's job you know they'll treat you nicely so i don't think we ever paid a recruitment bill ever <laughs> Uh, we never lost a member of staff in 20 years to go to another agency. We lost them for maybe other reasons, but nobody left us to say that I'm going to go wrong there. We invented the, or we, we adopted the concept of saying, keep everything in units of 10. So, you know, try and break the business down rather than have 50 people with one manager, try and make it as kind of self-managing unit of 10 people, because 10 is a good number. 
yeah, and notionally you might make one a supervisor, but let them manage the business itself. And the real revolutionary thing was that in 1977, eight, every member of the whole workforce, including the telephonist and the T-boy, but we didn't have a T-boy, um, got a copy of the management accounts. Uh, our monthly management accounts and once a month we'd sit down with them after work and we'd say look guys here's the deal you know that's how many bookings we, we build commission for that's the commission income that's what we actually receive that was the labor costs that was the telephone costs blah 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 and it became self-defacing in that the staff were the ones that saying oh shit our salary to uh, income ratio has gone above 35% this week. You know, we can't afford to take any more people on. So instead of the staff saying, oh, we need more people, we need more people, they, they were the ones saying, well, actually, you know, we're just obviously not being very efficient. And it was fantastic. So it meant that the board, you know, it could actually manage the future direction of the business and the people on the ground could actually get on with running themselves. And you know, it, it's always a danger when you have the board deciding process and you have this workforce deciding policy. Um, and you know, it, it, it was just such a delightful place to work and you know, not just from my point of view. And if I said to you of those 200 people, and of course, you know, maybe more because uh, people left, um, you know, 50 60 70 are still in touch with us today still in touch with us facebook linkedin whatever i think there's even a kind of xx patel employees club somewhere and so on and so on including so, yeah, green who lives in the next door condos here in singapore indeed indeed who uh, as you know x years on we come out of singapore and we're dinner together so um, I think it was very special and it was the 70s and the 80s and the things were quite unregulated in every way and travel, you know, anybody that wanted to be a travel agent could be a travel agent and blah, blah, blah. Moving on, um, I, you know, there, there were really ups and downs on some of those other companies. Uh, Worktopia, for example, you know, back in whatever year it was, you know, had the concept of automated meeting bookings. Yeah, and people have tried it. Other people have tried it since, and blah. And it's never really happened. And it's never really happened, I think, because meetings is uh, the ultimate. Uh, what do they call it? Um, you can't sell yesterday's bread today. Uh, if you don't consume it on Perishable. the day, perishable. perishable thing. Yeah. And yeah, therefore, if you've got a meeting room a year out, you want a thousand pounds for it. You know, if you've got a meeting room a week out, you'll say, I'll take nothing. <laughs> I'll take 10 quid because you're going to eat and drink. Um, and getting a computer to do that. Now, we've done it with bedrooms. We've done it with airline seats. We've done it with probably car rental. Why can't you do the meetings? Well, mainly because the venues are still largely operating on relatively manual meeting diary systems. You know, if they computerize everything there, and it'd be nice and simple. But, you know, even some big hotels that you and I know, actually, it's still a book and you know, somebody phones up. And you, you know. So, you know, whilst it was a big problem, Worktopia, I think, probably in about $15 million funding uh, based in the US, and I was there, man, in Europe, um, and we pissed away the $15 million, but uh, it, was, it was good fun. Um, 
my a big fun one was, I guess, um, I met a guy who I'd known originally as the sales director of the Portman Hotel. And 20 years on, he and I had a, a, a meet. And he said, what are you doing? And it was just after the 2008 crisis. And I had hotel brokers and other people on pay me a consultancy fee. And kind of about 2009, they were all saying, well, we're shipping this is not so good. And that's just about when I met him. And he said, you won't believe the deal I've just done. And that is that in Russia, there is a TV channel called Russia Today, uh, which we, you and I can see on Sky or whatever over here. And it's, it's broadcast in English. In fact, there's now four or five other language versions, but it's not broadcast in Russian. It was a Putin idea, and it was slightly propaganda-ish. It was slightly, you know, let's show the world that we're as good as the BBC, basically. And, you know, the BBC reflects non-bias and non-this and non-that, and Russia today was sort of trying to do the same thing in recent years actually has become very much a propaganda tool, but that's by the by. So 2009, Putin's given, you know, put in zillions of rubles into creating this TV channel. And basically, um, he and his top executives, every time they stayed in a five-star hotel somewhere around the world, they got CNN and BBC and blah, 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 Bloomberg, but they could never find their own channel. So my friend Robert got the contract to put RT as a channel in English, Spanish or Arabic into 20,000 four and five star hotels around the world. Robert got the contract and said, actually, I don't know that many hoteliers anymore because it's 20 years since I was in the hotel. So he and I met, he said, do you know any hoteliers? I said, do I know hoteliers? Yeah, I know a few. Uh, so uh, he and I worked the deal together with a couple of other good colleagues and we got it into 18,500 hotels around the world. Um, well, I, I got it into two for you. <laughs> cool. and, and Patrick, Patrick Veneland, my old boss, was also yeah, yeah, yeah. with some of that. Yeah, he became our uh, agent for uh, Northern Europe. Yeah. So, um, Dev's Drinking Club basically started, so I think 91, uh, I started the apartment service with Charlie McCrow, which took me kind of out of mainstream hotels into the service department world, which was great and very revolutionary for the time because you couldn't spell the word. and There was no one company that owned more than three uh, locations. Um, but because I was slightly out of hotels, I thought, do you know what? I really like to just keep in touch with my hotel mates. So I think four of us originally, two of whom sadly are no longer with us, but four of us met and we just had dinner and whatever. And on the back of a paper napkin, we wrote the rules. And the rules were, you had to be fun, not too much business. Um, uh, if we get to the size of the Albert Hall, we'll disband in it, uh, blah, blah, blah. And the idea was that we, the four of us just took it in turns each month, each quarter or whenever to, to find an interesting venue for dinner. And we all paid our own way and so on and so on. And it, it got quite big actually, about two or 300 people at <laughs> one of the functions. Uh, and it sort of still goes on, but probably more once a year now, um, usually near Christmas. So the yeah, health property team, Dev, you've been just under a decade in business and you've, you've got a, a formidable team with uh, 
a superior reputation in the field of hotel brokerage, which is really a boutique-led approach, but but again, with your global reach. How did it come about, and, and what are your some, some of your proudest buys and sells of, of hotels? I had two, three, four mates who were in the commercial estate agency business, i.e. offices, mainly because they were finding offices for us in London and Manchester, wherever. And over the years, you know, you'd meet up and you'd, uh, I'd ask them, I'd say, well, you know, how come you guys have never got into hotels? They said, ah, I've told this about hotels. You know, everyone knows everyone. Um, and that's quite true. You know, the guy I married used to work at PhD, and the guy uh, used to work at whatever, Hill. Um, so I kind of did a bit of homework on it, and this would have been about uh, 2014, 15. And came to the conclusion that actually there are only eight or nine major players in the hotel brokerage business. And they're called Savills and CBRE and Colliers and Christie's and Eastill and so on. And you know, not just in the UK, certainly in Europe, and probably even if you, you know, go down to Asia and so on. And then below that, you've got a whole bunch of boutique players, if you like. And I said, well, first of all, I like the odds. You know, nine competitors in the in the big team, big league. You know, and there's what a million hotels around the world. You know, I could divide one into the other, and that makes sense. Uh, and then I got into the, the the lower league players, and I found they were all bloody lunatics. They were all kind of weird people that will phone you up on a Wednesday and say, I can get you the Bulgarian Knightsbridge, or I can get you the Hilton on Park Lane, or I can get you the Richmond Paris. And I think, you know, you can't. You know, you're talking bollocks. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And I don't even, to this day, know why they do it. I've got, but, to, I've got to pull you up here, Dev, because I knew you got into the business when you <laughs> called me one day and said, how do I buy the Langham, Gareth? Who do I speak to? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I said, I don't think it's for sale, Dev, but this is the CEO uh, at CEO's uh, yeah. PA. You, sh you could send her an email and see see if someone will do a deal with you. Well, funnily enough, you know, I am now in touch with the development director of the Langham Hotels. And, uh, <laughs> we talk to each other every now and again. So, and then the other bit is that um, the major brands, as we all know, don't own the hotels anymore. And you try and get a list of Hilton franchisees of Hilton. Uh, it's a closely guarded secret because Apple would like it, and they're not going to give it to you, and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of know an awful lot of, of those people. You know, so if you said to me, the Shangri-La in Paris, you know, I know it's not actually owned by Shangri-La, it's owned by Mr. So and so. And you know, therefore, if there is a conversation to be had to say, are you interested in selling it, and so on. So I, over a couple of years, you know, started building the hotel property um, up. And as you say, I've got half a dozen associate partners, if you like, who, good guys, you know, some of them in geography. So there's a guy in Spain and there's a guy in the States and there's a guy somewhere else. And Charlie is kind of a, he's my service department guru, if you like, and blah, blah, blah. And I've now got that up to 1,700 people. And these are people I know, you know and have met over the years. And you can't phone 1,700 people every week and say, hi, how are you? What's going on? Anything changing? So I came up with this idea of saying, well, let's create a website. And on a weekly basis, 
will do a kind of tab called recent deals. And it's basically who did what in the marketplace last week, big and small, mainly big. And last week it was Blackstone bought Butlins Holiday Camps and Warner Leisure Hotels. Yeah, quite a big deal, three billion sterling or something. And the importance of it being that Blackstone, you know, who owned Hilton at one stage, yeah, you know, suddenly now getting into the staycation business. Uh, you know, and that's a trend that's kind of interesting. You know, there's obviously a reason for it. Uh, or this hotel's owning, or uh, I think it's Langham have actually owned a four-bed single residence unit in Munich, which costs about 10 grand a night to rent. And it's the biggest hotel with four bedrooms. <laughs> you know, and that's Langham. <laughs> so uh, very interesting. So I write these things up, usually about 10, 15 posts a week. And A, I mail them to who I've written about. So suddenly they all become aware of me and they phone me up and say, okay, you wrote about that one, but actually we're still in the market to buy or sell or whatever. And B, 1,700 people, half of them are hoteliers and the other half of the money, uh, get my post. And then every three weeks or so, I do something on hotels actually available for sale. And, uh, and that could be anything from, there was a mailing yesterday, 25 beds in a hotel in Capri, uh, opposite Naples uh, in Italy, um, 22 room palace in Venice, up to you know, 200 room hotel here, or a trio of uh, Accor properties in Melbourne, 400 rooms between them, so on and so on. And yeah, you know, I just vary it a bit, and it's not all the repertoire we've got, it's just a, 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 a eye look on it. Um, and basically, it creates the, the marketing that I needed to do. Uh, and every time I do a mailing, three people phone me up and say, oh, actually, I'm quite interested in that. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, worth doing. And a lot of the time uh, in terms of the best deals we've done, uh, Chateau in Tuscany, um, can't name names, but uh, 45 rooms, started off at a zillion euros and we kind of between us got it down to sensible price. Um, 30 room hotel in the Lake District, uh, which we bought for 14 mil for this client, Indian fella. Um, he spent probably the same again, it's now probably the best uh, 30 room hotel in, in, in the Lakes. And he, in a good climate, he could probably sell it for 50 mil. Um, I've got a, a dilapidated building in North Wales, uh, thinking of you. Uh, <laughs> the foot, foot of Snowdonia, it was a hundred room mansion. It was falling apart, the roof was off, the whole bit. Uh, it was where Prince Charles had his investors a ball uh, way back in, whatever. Um, a guy bought it a couple of years ago and he's lovingly restored it to a 42 room stroke suite hotel with more marble than Italy's got and more etched glass and blah, blah, blah. So we're trying to help him uh, get that away at the moment. Uh, yeah, so lots of different things that uh, we're, we're, we have done or are doing. Excellent. A lot of the time you have access to properties that are not necessarily publicized or appearing on the newsletter and they obviously require an, an NDA and proof of funds. What, why do some sellers take this approach and how does the process really work with regards to brokers in that regard? Okay, so 
I guess it, it's fairly logical and obvious that you know, if you want to sell a hotel, you want to get it to the eight people in the world that could afford to buy it, but you don't want the 800,000 people out there knowing about it. Mm-hmm. Not least of all because you're staff, because you're clients, blah, 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 blah. So it, it's kind of an interesting deal. You know, if you've got an office building, you know, you take a front page ad in the Estates Gazette or the Time, or Financial Times or whatever, and just say, hey, it's up for sale. And whether I've got tenants in there or not doesn't really matter. But a hotel, you know, lots of sensitivities. So the NDA started as a way in which uh, somebody said, you know, I'll share this information with you, but I want to make sure you're not going to tell the whole world, and particularly my competitors and so on. I think there are two schools of thought. One and a half is um, it ain't worth the paper it's written on. Uh, because uh, I can sign an NDA with you, and there's a million other ways, a uh, million ways you can get it out. Uh, other people, I, I think it comes down to you know most business on the buying and selling hotels happens between two parties that trust and respect each other. Yeah, and if I say to you, Gareth, I've got this really hot deal, but you're only going to tell three people, you know, I'll either know you well enough to say yes, I can trust him. You can sign a stack of NDAs and blah, and if I don't know you from Adam, I probably need to do that. Um, but it is one of those uh, scenarios. I had one yesterday actually backfired on me badly. Uh, somebody wanted to do a viewing on a property in the UK uh, because of COVID and so on. It was all closed down. Um, it was agreed that the potential buyer would meet a kind of caretaker stroke receptionist as the only person actually working there on the pretext of, you know, we want to send you some business next year. And whilst the two people were walking around, one say, oh, you can knock that down and build 20 more rooms there and you can do that and stick a spa in and blah. So it took her about 30 seconds to work out the hotels the same. And the owner, of course, phoned me up and quite annoyed. And said, well, hang on a sec, you know, the staff don't know it. <laughs> it is a sensitive thing and you just have to play it uh, carefully. Uh, how is the market currently with regards to property? Okay. Every call I take today and have done for the last seven, eight months starts with a conversation with a line that says, good morning, can you tell me what the COVID discount is on this hotel? And the COVID discount is being defined as about 35% below what it might have been in 2019. Uh, and I think it sort of started in New York and the US and it, it's come over here now. And interestingly, the reply is that in, if you take Europe as a whole, the weaker markets, predominantly those around the Mediterranean, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, Eastern Europe, and so on, there is definitely discounting going on. There are, uh, I've got a hotel, yeah, which it was a hundred million euros and if you got 50 tomorrow, you'd be happy back. Yeah, so yeah, fantastic. And that's what everyone wants. Uh, but interestingly, the strong markets like London, Dublin, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, actually are holding firm. And I think, firstly, in the UK, the government has told the clearing banks, don't be idiots, um, you know, don't foreclose on this guy. And the banks are working out for themselves, there's no point in foreclosing on the guy because what are they going to do with the property anyway? Um, so I think banks are being quite supportive, particularly if you're gearing sensible. 
if you're 50 to 60 percent geared i think the banks are saying you know look if people try and repay me some of those repayments that'd be helpful um but they're taking a kind of considered view to find funding today for a new project is 10 times more difficult but that's fine um that's not to say it won't happen i think you know come the spring it, it, it all really obviously depends on how's the uh uh the, the vaccine going to affect uh, when's travel going to come back into play you know when's the market going to come back i personally think it's still another good two three years off I think 21 will probably just about start seeing the bright spots. 22, I think, is going to be a year where it's all going to start coming back in. And 23, if we're lucky, you, know, you might suddenly start seeing uh, good occupancies and room rates and so on. Um, so it is a fast moving market. Who knows? Uh, you know, somebody said, phoned me up the other day and said, What I want is, can you catch that property? the week before it goes into receivership and i said oh uh, what do you think i've got a crystal ball you know, <laughs> unless i'm spying on the guy and the conversations he's having with his bank you know, or the bank you know tell me things that they shouldn't be telling me forget it pal you, know, you can guess certain properties and say well we know he's pretty highly geared and therefore might be worth just keeping in touch um so i think today's market is as much about calling a hotelier up and saying, well, I know you don't really want to sell this, but if I had a cash offer for X tomorrow, would you take it? Um, and as I say, in London, that's not really showing much uh, much give from, from the seller's point of view. So if you ha fictionally had money to invest in, in a hotel and, and think there is value to be had, where would that be currently? Okay, I wrote a couple of these down. Um, I think with a half an eye out on the staycation business, I think you know, there's always been anything that's within 90 minutes drive of London is good news. And if it's got Hampshire or Berkshire in, in, in the county name, uh, definitely worth doing. Or you know, the equivalent Tuscany in Italy or Venice or whatever. So I'd say a, a, a hotel that's in a marketplace where it can rely on staycation and yet still be fairly attractive for spa related or whatever yeah the business will come back yeah it's if it's going to take two years what i'd buy is the dog of the hotel if you can find it that's going to take two years to refurb it because you haven't got any customers anyway so you know, now's a bloody good time to do it um i think most people go slightly wrong uh, particularly if they're not really hoteliers you know they they buy the 20 room hotel in the Cotswolds and then suddenly work out that if you haven't got 50 or more rooms, you can't probably afford a whole full time manager and so on and so on. So size and shape is quite important. Um, and I was talking to some, you know, pe people's concepts on yield uh, can vary geographically. So in Asia, you know, if you're not getting 8% yield on whatever you do with your money, you know, so you, you think you've been drinking the wrong sort of drink. Um, whereas in London, you know, if you've got a four percent yield on operating asset, you're doing well. But then the joy of hotels is not only can you get your four percent every year whilst you're running it, you then get an asset value growth uh, in five or ten years' time when you come to sell it. So 
yeah, it's it, it's getting making sure that everyone understands the economics and it's not one metric or the other. It's not price per room. It's not yield per year. It's not asset growth. It's the combination of the three or whatever. Yep. So I hope you really answered your question, but there you go. <laughs> you, no, you did. You did the Cotswolds and uh, Hampshire and Berkshire, Tuscany, and you answered it extremely well. Ev, <laughs> thank you so much for regaling some fascinating travel stories right the way from the 70s to to what you're doing now genuinely appreciate it and uh, really look forward to catching up the other side of lockdown all all the best from this end my pleasure sir and uh, yeah, keep well keep safe thank you so much Deb. all the best all right. <laughs>